Well, today we've gotten to sing How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Be thou my vision and for all the saints. It's great. Somebody, you know, tapped into the secret uh, treasury of my very favorite hymns of all time and just put them all on today. So thank you, Alan. Whoever, he'll be back, he said, with my cup of water as well. Tonight we're looking at Acts chapter 9. We're looking at Jesus, the champion who captures his enemies. Well, one specific enemy, but uh, you might call Saul of Tarsus kingdom enemy number one. Not public enemy number one, but an enemy of the kingdom of Christ. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, because he is the, I, I suppose, if uh, if I were where Ananias of Damascus was, uh, I would have put up even a stronger protest when the Lord said, now, I have this fellow Saul that I want you to go and pray for so that he'll be able to see you clearly uh, because he's going to carry my name to the Gentiles. I would have thought, Lord, surely you've gotten the wrong name the wrong man. We know about Saul. The word is out on Saul. And surely you have made some mistake somewhere. With all due respect, Lord, you've made some mistake somewhere because this is not a fellow who is going to proclaim the name of Jesus. He certainly is not somebody who's going to spend much time with those unwashed pagan Gentiles. Highly unlikely, Lord. Look again at your records. There must be somebody else that you had in mind. But Jesus had Saul of Tarsus in mind. He had written that name in the Lamb's Book of Life before creation began. And he had an agenda for Saul of Tarsus that was something that Saul of Tarsus had never dreamt of before that mighty, humbling encounter that Saul had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Hear God's word. From Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise And enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's word. Let's ask him to teach us this evening. Father, we sit before your word this evening, eager to hear what you have to say to us. Physically, we may be tired and weary after great activity throughout the day, but Father, spiritually, we are eager to hear what you have to show us about your victory over so firm and violent an enemy as Saul of Tarsus, how you captured him, not by killing him, but rather by conquering his heart through your grace and turning him into the proclaimer of grace to the nations at the end of the earth. So, Father, teach us this evening, and as you teach us, Again, impress upon us the wonder of your mercy. If you could show grace to Saul of Tarsus, you can show grace to us in the worst of our guilt as we turn in humble trust to you and rely upon Jesus and his work. Father, teach us that lesson in a deeper way even this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I need to talk to the children and the teens a little bit who weren't with us this morning just to make sure you understand that in this text we're reading about a different Ananias than the Ananias that the adults studied this morning. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the account earlier in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira, the people who pretended to be something they were not, to be more generous than they were willing to be, more trusting in the Lord than they really had trust at all in the Lord. They were judged by God. 
It's a little confusing that there are two people in the early church by the name of Ananias, but that's the way it is. There are two cities in the book of Acts that are called Antioch as well. Come to think of it, there are two disciples of Jesus called Simon, but we usually get to call one of them Peter. And there are two disciples of Jesus called James as well. Probably two people in this room that have the same name too. I think there's a mic or two around here. That's the way it happens. So, don't get the Ananiases confused. Ananias, the actor, the hypocrite, the liar who was judged in Jerusalem back in chapter 5. And then there's this Ananias, a man who loved and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that when the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and gave him a very difficult task, he immediately went and did that assignment. When Jesus said, I want you to go and pray for Saul of Tarsus, and Ananias, as we heard, said, Lord, we know what this man is like. He wants to arrest us and kill us. And Jesus said, no, you go. I have chosen him. I'm going to make him an instrument, a vessel, and I'm going to pour my name into him so that he will carry it to various people across the world. Ananias immediately went. Now, Jesus' statement was almost unbelievable. I I have already indicated some of the reasons why Saul seems a very unlikely candidate to be the apostle to the Gentile nations. First of all, of course, he's convinced that Jesus is no Messiah. We'll explore in a minute why that might be. But he's absolutely convinced that those who are preaching that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel have it dead wrong and they're leading people astray spiritually. And he's ready to take up arms to defend, as he sees it, the true faith of Israel. He's ready to persecute the followers of Jesus. He was happy to see Stephen bleeding, bruised, and finally dying under the weight of the stones. He even held the garments for the people who wanted to, who who were the witnesses who, uh, who stoned Stephen. Saul was also pretty proud of his law-keeping, that uh, he was pretty proud of his record. When he, as an apostle of Jesus, looks back on his pre-Christ life in his letters, in the first chapter of Galatians, in Philippians chapter 3, he said, you know, I was, I was way out ahead of everybody. In my class, I was getting straight A's in Torah studies. I was the the, the yeshiva boy who exceeded all the others, way out at the top of the class. Some of you may be at the top of the class. You know, it's hard to be humble when you're that good, isn't it? Well, he had a little hard time being humble, but apparently everybody else also recognized that Saul was a good student of the Bible, a good student of the law and of the Old Testament. And now these people these followers of this false Messiah, Jesus, are saying that the way that you receive the mercy of God is not by working with all your might to make sure that you keep all the commands of God. The rabbis had counted all the commands of God. How many commands do you think? Ten commandments, right? Well, yes, ten commandments. They're the biggies. 
Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbis knew those two as well, as we know from a conversation that Jesus had with an expert in the law of God. So, ten summarized in two, but, you know, there are a few other details. And by the time they'd counted them up, they came up with 20, right? 50? You're right, 613. Okay, 613. And Saul was doing a pretty good average. And yet these people said that's not the way to assure yourself that you're in the favor of God. Important to be part of Israel, but also important to keep the commands. Saul was an unlikely candidate to be among the Gentiles. But it's interesting that in the narration of this history, in the events that take place, Saul is already sandwiched between the Gentiles. Did you ever notice that as you're reading through Acts? In Acts chapter 8, Philip, at the end of the chapter, meets a court official from Ethiopia, who is a eunuch, who has come to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But since he's a eunuch, because he has that physical defect, he could not have become a full convert to Judaism. He could not have entered into the temple courts. And yet he so hungered to know the true and living God, and he knew that the God of Israel was the true and living God, that he went there. He spent a lot of money, no doubt, to buy a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he was on his way home to Ethiopia... He was reading the scroll and he just happened to be reading, yeah right, just happened, (laughs) to be reading Isaiah 53, which we've been looking at already this week about the suffering servant, and he doesn't know who it's about. And the Lord just miraculously happens to provide an interpreter in in the person of Philip, and the Holy Spirit says to Philip, you go up and meet that chariot wagon and explain to that man what this is all about. And so he begins with that passage and opens up the truth about Jesus, the suffering servant who is exalted, suffering for the people, suffering for the guilty, but exalted and glorified by God. And the Ethiopian eunuch believes and receives baptism right there on the road. That's one end, just before we get to Saul. And on the other end, Of course, in chapters 10 and 11, we read about God sending Peter to a Roman occupation army officer in charge of a hundred men, Cornelius, to preach so that this Gentile and his friends and family would also come to believe in Jesus. So here is Saul sandwiched right between Gentiles. And the, the apostle to the Gentiles is called by God's sovereign grace. If you're looking at your outline, you see we've got four points to talk about this evening. Saul the enemy, the capture, the conqueror, and then the new Saul. Saul, the servant witness of Jesus. So we're just tracking through the text. Saul the enemy, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He wants to arrest those who belong to the way interesting description of the church, the way. Actually, the the folks that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls also in some of their documents referred to themselves as the way. But I'm convinced that the early Christians called themselves the way because, or were called the way because they kept talking about Jesus as the way and the truth 
and the life. John 14, verse 6. And we find this expression, the way, to describe coming to God through Jesus and living in the light of Christ all the way through the book of Acts. In Acts 16, 17, the gospel itself is called the way of salvation. And in chapter 18, verses 25 and 26, it's called the way of the Lord. And the whole Christian movement is called the way, not just here, but in chapter 19 and 22 and 24. I've given you all those verses in the outline. You can look them up later. But the way, the path to God, how do we get to God? And these folks, having been captured by grace, preach Jesus is the way that we come into the presence of God. Now the Holy Spirit guides Luke to do a little wordplay here because you see that as Paul gets the arrest warrants for the people who belong to the way, in verse 3, he goes on his way or road. Same word. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on the way to Damascus to try to eradicate this movement which is called the way. Why? Because he's zealous for the honor of God. Because he cares about the glory of God and the law of God. And he's afraid that these people are going to lead people astray. God's zealot, I put in your outline. That's really the way Paul describes himself. In Galatians 1, when he looks back on his earlier life, he says, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of our fathers. In Philippians 3, he says, If you want to know how zealous I was for God, I persecuted the church. That's the measure of how passionately I wanted to maintain the honor and the glory of God. Why did he feel that caring about God should compel him to eradicate this message about Jesus? Well, I mentioned that he was offended at the thought that these folks were preaching Jesus as Messiah. What was the problem with that? Well, the problem, among others, was that he knew very well that Jesus had been executed in a very a way that obviously demonstrated that he was bearing the curse of God. He was hanged on a tree. Paul uses that language to describe Jesus' execution when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Jesus was hanged on a tree. Earlier in the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, the apostles had been preaching about the fact that Jesus was executed by being hanged on a tree. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. They hanged him on a tree. Later on, Paul would mention that same thing as recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 13, verse 29. What's the big deal with that? Well, you see, the Scriptures said, the Old Testament said, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. There are two words in the New Testament for that implement by which Jesus was executed. One is the word cross that we're very familiar with. That's the word that the Romans typically used, and it was a word that symbolized the most shameful kind of death. But when the word tree is used in a Jewish setting, it means even more shame than that because it means rejected by God. 
Saul knew that Jesus had been rejected by God. How could God's anointed king and Messiah be rejected by God? It's impossible. So Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he died under God's curse. So Saul says these people who are called the way are leading people in the wrong way. They're not leading people to God by way of worshiping in the temple and adhering to the Torah, to the law of God. No wonder he approved of Stephen's being executed. Stephen was accused of speaking against the temple, speaking against the law delivered by Moses, saying that Jesus would destroy the temple, saying that the customs that God had delivered to Moses was not, were not the way to God. Whether those accusations were true or false, it didn't matter. Saul was convinced that Stephen was guilty and that the Messiah, false Messiah who was preaching, was no Messiah at all. So Saul felt himself obligated to defend the honor of God by trying to kill off the movement of followers of Jesus, trying to kill off the way. He's on his way to Damascus. And as he's approaching Damascus, suddenly, at midday, a light brighter than the sun appears. Remember, this story is told three times in the book of Acts. I'd love to read all three or bring them all together. We don't have time for that this evening, and you probably don't have energy for that after all your volleyball games. But in another account, as Paul describes it, we have it in 22 and again in chapter 26, he says it was a light that was brighter than the midday sun that shone down and it struck him to the ground. And then he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now here, as Luke records it for us, he mentions that those who were traveling with Saul heard the voice, heard the sound, but they didn't see the person of Jesus in the light. When Paul describes it later, he says... They saw the light, but they couldn't understand the words. The point is, they saw that something was happening, but the content of the vision was so focused that it came only to Paul. Only Saul saw the form of Jesus in his radiant light. Only Saul understood the words, but everybody who was with him knew that something terrifying was happening a display of the glory of God. It's a lot like what happened when God gave a vision to Daniel in Daniel 10. Daniel says, Only I received the vision, but everybody who was with me were trembling because something was happening. It was directed to Saul, and yet it was not simply something going on in his own head. It was something that others could visibly recognize and audibly recognize as well, even though they didn't get the message itself. So his companions sensed that something terrifying was happening. But only Saul heard the call. Saul, Saul. Usually when God calls somebody's name twice in the older parts of the Bible, it is a call not to judgment, but to ministry. And that's what it turns out to be here too. Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 4. Moses, Moses. And Moses is called to lead the people of God out of slavery and into freedom. Samuel, at night, 
as a young boy at the tent of meeting. 1 Samuel 3, verse 10, not verse 4 as your outline says if you're taking notes. Verse 10 is where Samuel is called twice by name. Samuel, Samuel. And it's not the priest Eli who's calling him. It's the Lord himself calling him and giving him a word of revelation. Even earlier in Genesis 46, 2, God calls Jacob's name twice. Jacob, Jacob, and makes promises to Jacob. So here he says, Saul, Saul, I want your attention. I'm calling you into service. I'm going to come back to that way that Jesus identifies himself in just a minute. But notice that what comes out of this is that as Saul opens his eyes, having been confronted with the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, he cannot see. He is blind. We've talked about how most of the miracles in the New Testament that we read are miracles of blessing. There are miracles of judgment in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New. Certainly the miracles accompanying the plagues on Egypt are miracles of judgment in the Old Testament. But when we come into the New Testament, we have no miracle of judgment performed by Jesus during his earthly ministry except his cursing of the fig tree, a sign of judgment that would come on the unbelieving portion of Israel. But in the book of Acts, we actually have four miracles of judgment. Two deaths, Ananias and Sapphira struck dead, and King Herod struck dead in chapter 12, and two instances of people being struck blind. Saul here and a Jewish magician by the name of Elimus in chapter 13 struck blind. What is the significance of the blindness? Well, we've already had a clue about that as we've looked at some other passages because as Isaiah reminded the people of God, God had given mighty demonstrations of his power in the Exodus, in the conquest, in the victories of David, in the beautiful, peaceful reign of Solomon, <laughs> demonstrations of his power. But Israel was blind and didn't see them and couldn't be faithful eyewitnesses. Probably even more, though, than that reminder that Israel was blind and therefore needed to be healed in order to be witnesses is this statement of judgment in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28... The Lord begins that chapter by saying, Now, through Moses, my people are going to go into the land, and if they love me and obey me in the land, they will enjoy blessing in the land of promise. But if they disobey, there will be curses. And among the curses, verses 28 and 29, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways. At noonday, as the blind grope in darkness. That's where Saul was. He'd received a judgment from God because he had opposed God and his Messiah. And yet he was not struck dead. The radiant light might have led him to think that his days were numbered. His moments, his minutes, his seconds were numbered. Other prophets who were confronted by the radiant light of God's glory were struck with terror. And Saul had all the more reason to be afraid. And yet, instead, he's pressed 
into service. He's pressed into service by the one who identifies himself. The capture is quick. The curse that falls upon him will soon be lifted. But who is the one who captured him? Who is the one who has done battle against Saul the enemy and has conquered him? Well, you see the way Saul identifies him without even knowing who he is in Acts chapter 9 when Saul says, Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know exactly who this is, but anybody who has this much power and radiant light and glory deserves to be called Lord. And of course, throughout Paul's letters, he will indeed refer to Jesus as the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, over and over again, the Sovereign One, the King who has every right to command Him. Who are you, Lord? And the answer is, Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, when did Saul persecute Jesus? As far as we know, their paths didn't cross during Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is now in heaven, reigning in power and glory, as we've seen from Acts 1. When did Paul, Saul, persecute Jesus? Saul persecuted Jesus when he persecuted Jesus' people. That's the point. Jesus so identifies with his people that he counts harm done to them as harm done to himself. Jesus had said that, actually. The way people treat you, I will count as the way they are treating me. Luke chapter 10, for example, verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Or Matthew 25. Jesus talks about judgment, the separation of sheep and goats. And the goats have seen, Jesus says, have seen him poor and naked and hungry and homeless and having ignored his need. And the sheep have seen him poor and hungry and naked, and have cared for him. And both the goats and the sheep say, Lord, we don't remember having seen you. But to both, he says, when you care for the least of my brothers, those who belong to me, those who are serving me, those who are walking by faith in me, as you care for them, you've cared for me. So that's the point that Jesus is making here. Saul, in persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. I take this as a personal offense against myself. There's a Korean New Testament scholar by the name of Seun Kim who wrote a wonderful book, a little technical because it's his doctoral dissertation, so it has way too many footnotes in it, but that's what the doctoral studies are for, called The Origin of Paul's Gospel. Some of you may think, my, that sounds a lot like another book by an older guy by the name of Machen called The Origin of Paul's Religion. Yes, that was very intentional. Dr. Kim intended to honor Dr. Machen in titling his his book that. Dr. Kim's book argues that there are a whole host of strands in Paul's preaching and in Paul's letters that you can trace back to this event. When Paul talks about 
the light of the glory of God shining into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. Dr. Kim says, why does Paul pick up that imagery of light? Not only because, of course, that's always a biblical imagery for God's revelation, but because that's how the gospel came bursting in on his life and experience on the Damascus Road. And we know of Paul's theme of union with Christ, that we are united to Christ so that what he has done for us in his obedience and cross and resurrection is counted as ours, but also what we experience he counts as his own, that wonderful union. Our sin is imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us, so that Paul can even say in Colossians 1, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now that's, that's an amazing statement. In the light of all that Paul says about the completeness of Jesus' redemptive work, his saving work. But Paul says there's still something to be filled up in the sufferings of Christ, not to establish the basis for our salvation, but to get the word out. The suffering of the messengers of Christ. So Jesus says, I count the sufferings of my people as my own sufferings. If you suffered for the gospel, if your family or your friends think you're ridiculous because you believe in Jesus and they make fun of you, the King of Kings counts the harm that you've received because you stand for Him as His own. And He cares for you in that. And then Jesus gives the commission. Get up. I'm going to go into, go into Damascus and I'll give you instructions from there. And of course, there's where he now appears to Ananias, this faithful Ananias of Damascus. And he says, go to Saul, pray for him because he is a chosen instrument, a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The word vessel that Jesus uses here is the same word that Paul will pick up and use in 2 Corinthians 4 when he describes the amazing contrast between the treasure of the gospel and the humble packaging it comes in. We have this treasure in vessels of clay. We have this amazing riches, the message that brings life to the dead in clay pots. I don't usually do sermon illustrations, and I didn't come prepared to do it, but one time when I was preaching on that passage to illustrate how fragile clay pots were, I brought a red clay pot from home and put it up here and stepped on it, and it cracked in no time. The kids in the congregation all remembered the illustration. They had no idea what it was illustrating. But, you know, they all went, wow! But it illustrates clay pots are not worth very much. They're not very strong. But when you put a treasure in them, as people tended to do in the, in the time of Paul, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in clay pots in the caves up above the Dead Sea, a treasure in clay pots. Then that pot becomes something very important because it's carrying something of great value. Jesus says here, I'm going to pour my name, I'm going to pour my name into this pot, Saul of Tarsus, and he's going to carry my name to the nations and to kings and to the children of Israel. 
and it's going to hurt. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. As Saul had afflicted others who called on the name of Jesus, Ananias reminded Jesus of that, so now Saul would suffer for the name of Jesus. And of course, in the passage just after the place where I stopped reading, as the Jewish people and who don't believe in the Messiah in Damascus are frustrated because they cannot refute Saul's demonstrating from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah who would suffer and be glorified, they immediately begin to conspire to try to assassinate him. And the rest of Acts shows us his suffering over and over again. Imprisonment, slander, stoning, beating, assassination, conspiracies, shipwreck. It's not fun to be a messenger of the Gospel. But what an honor to be a vessel that carries the name of Jesus. And so Ananias goes and he prays for Saul. And Saul can see again. He is a witness who can now bear witness to what he has seen and heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's a kind of added apostle on top of the twelve. The twelve, the number of the twelve was completed by the Selection by Jesus of Matthias in chapter 1, but now there's one more, especially sent out to the world, to the ends of the earth, called, sandwiched between Gentiles, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, but now called to the Gentiles far and wide. And Saul begins immediately to bear witness to Jesus in the synagogues, demonstrating powerfully that Jesus is the Messiah. When I was in seminary, I had a wonderful opportunity uh, one year to be leading a Bible study through the letter to the Galatians. And in this Bible study, was, we were hoping it was going to be a church plant out in Bucks County to the north of Philadelphia. didn't really exactly become that, but it was still a wonderful experience there. In this Bible study was a young man, a college student, who, had been, who was Jewish, he had been raised in Judaism and had just come to faith in Jesus in the months before the Bible study started. He'd come to know the Lord through the witness of Dr. Jack Miller, who was one of my profs there, and he became part of that Bible study. And it was such a wonderful experience for me. I'd been raised in the church. <clears throat> in the church. I knew a lot of the Bible, but uh, I was, I'm a Gentile. I'm a Swede, you know. Uh, as one chapel speaker once reminded us that he also was a Swede and uh, his ancestors had once toasted their victories from the skulls of their defeated enemies. I thought, whoa, that's a little severe. But that's what we Scandinavians were like once upon a time. But, yes, okay, but I knew a lot about the Bible. In some ways I knew more about the New Testament than my friend Jonathan did, this young Jewish believer. But it was so fun to be in that Bible study with him and watch as the lights go on, as he would see, see the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, take these various scriptures from the Old Testament and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures, including that one I mentioned earlier, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree which Paul embeds right in the middle of his argument for how Jesus has been the Savior of his people. Because Paul says, 
Jesus endured the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us who believe in him. Jesus was cursed not because he deserved to be cursed, but because we do. So that he could take our curse to himself and give us the blessing that he has every right to receive for his perfect obedience to God's covenant. Well, you see, I would have loved to have been in, that, to have been in those synagogues of Damascus, even as a, as a God-fearer, a Gentile non-convert, just to listen to this man who had steeped his mind in the Scriptures of the Old Testament for years and years, but in an attitude of proud self-reliance and now he's been humbled and he's seen that the key to the whole Scriptures is Jesus, the Messiah, who came as the despised suffering servant and suffered and died and was raised from the dead. Wouldn't that have been an exciting thing? Not as exciting as walking with Jesus down the road to Emmaus, of course, but pretty exciting. Because now, all of that study that Saul had invested, in which he'd gotten all those straight A's, in yeshiva, in, in, in uh, Hebrew school, now all that study comes to focus because he has the key that unlocks the whole scripture, Jesus Christ. And so he preaches. And he preaches boldly. And nobody can answer him. It's not comfortable. It's not safe. Soon people are conspiring to take his life but he rejoices even in his sufferings, even in his weakness, because he knows that in his weakness the power of Christ is manifested. Wow, what a story. What an amazing, amazing story. Now, Saul's a unique guy. Not all of us are like Saul. Not all of us, not any of us, have had a Damascus Road experience like that. So, what do we say about that? What a great story. I'm glad Jesus did that. I'm glad that there was preaching to the Gentiles. We say all that, but we say one more thing. Because we hear Saul's own commentary on this story in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you have a Bible, turn over there so you can look at that with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is the short version of the history of Saul, B.C. and U.C., before Christ and under Christ, or I.C., in Christ. Verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. I'm the example of how patient 
gracious and merciful Jesus can be. I said at the beginning that if you were to look at Saul before this encounter, you would think he's the most unlikely candidate to be the proclaimer of the good news of God's sheer sovereign grace to the Gentiles. But when you think about it, really he's the perfect person to do it. Because his experience shows that the best we can do in seeking to establish our own righteousness before God in trying to keep the commands of God, the best we can do, because Saul is the best as a lawkeeper, is a miserable failure. If we're ever tempted to think that God's pleasure with us or God's favor toward us or God's acceptance of us rests on our performance, look at Saul of Tarsus. He was better than you are at that. And it, was, it made him an enemy of Christ. So on the one hand, if we're ever tempted to pursue self-righteousness, Saul's experience says, don't go that way, it's a dead end. But on the other hand, just because he was an enemy of Christ, if we're ever tempted to think, my sins are so great they could never be forgiven, Paul says, look at me, the foremost of sinners. I was shown mercy so that you will believe that there is always forgiveness for you as you repent of your sins and come in humble trust and reliance on Jesus and His blood and righteousness. Anybody can be forgiven. If, if I can be forgiven, anybody can be forgiven. I am exhibit A of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful gospel that Paul not only preaches, but really embodies as a demonstration of one who has experienced grace in contrast to what he really deserves, a demonstration of the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your saving grace that demonstrates to us not only the futility of our efforts to please You in our attempts to keep Your law in ourselves, but also the wonder of Your grace in forgiving our sin, forgiving our pride, forgiving our self-righteousness, and capturing us as You captured Saul for the cause of Christ and for the glory of Christ. We pray, Father, that You will move us to gratitude and joy and love in response to the amazing grace you've shown to us, even as you showed it to Saul and made him the great example of your patient, patience for all of us who believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.